also to the New Testament, to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. The text for this morning is Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. This also is God's holy word. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Almighty God, We come before you and we acknowledge, Father, that you are the one who does the mighty work of conversion. That uh, for man to have faith and repentance, if your power were not at work, man can do no, no such conversion upon himself. Yet at the same time, you command that men believe the gospel and repent of their sins. And Father, we pray that we would trust in your mighty power that we would desire to turn from our sins, that we would forsake them. Father, we acknowledge that sins, our sins, grieve you. And Father, we pray that we would cling to Christ and let go of the sins of our lives. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have new hope for forgiveness, that we have new life. And Father, we pray acknowledging that your people are a new creation, that the old has gone and the new has come. And Father, we pray that you would grant us understanding of these things, that we would desire what is right and true, that we would desire what is pleasing to you. Father, if any are here who have not embraced the good news of Jesus Christ, we pray that you might do a mighty work, that you would, uh, that you would break the bonds of sin, and that you would grant new hearts. Father, we pray for salvation and in your house. We pray acknowledging that you are the one alone who has the power to do that. And we pray, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. As I think through the topic of conversion, uh, we're in the series on the order of salvation. And we've gotten to uh, the section on conversion, which consists of faith and repentance. There are any number of biblical accounts about conversion. It was difficult for me to to settle on which one. You have the Philippian jailer. uh, You have the apostle Paul. You have Lydia. uh, You have 
here Zacchaeus, and I said any number of them. What is true about conversion in these accounts is that there is a believing upon Jesus Christ. There is an acceptance of the truth of the gospel, an acceptance as one's own. There must also be, wherever true faith exists, there is also true repentance. Repentance is not merely the acknowledgement of sin, but a forsaking of it, a willingness to let it go, a hatred of sin, and a clinging to Christ. And so here we have an account of Zacchaeus and his conversion and the work of God. In Luke, earlier in one chapter, uh, we, just, we just have the section before a story about Bartimaeus, a poor blind man. So he was poor and he was blind. And then we have Luke 19, an account of a rich man, Zacchaeus, who... Spiritually, he was blind and that he was given sight so that he might embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. In both of these counts, we have sinners and both of them demonstrate the power of our Lord Jesus. So the truth that we see in this passage is that conversion is the conscious act of a regenerate person turning to Christ in repentance and faith. Conversion is the conscious act of a regenerate person turning to Christ in repentance and faith. We'll look at this in four points. The first is the account of Zacchaeus. Second, the embrace of Christ by faith. Third, the fruits of repentance. And fourth, the saving work of Christ. So the first point, the account of Zacchaeus. So this is from verses 1 through 4. So, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So here is this man, Zacchaeus, and we're told that, that he lived in the city of Jericho. <clears throat> and perhaps you remember that Jericho was the land that Joshua and the Israelites spied out. And that was the hometown of Rahab. That of all people, you have a woman who was a prostitute uh, or, and or an innkeeper. And here, she believed upon the promises of God. She, she believed about this good word. She believed that God is with his people. And that a slave people conquered a great and mighty nation in Egypt. That God brought his people out by great deliverance. This land of Jericho, we're told in Joshua 6.26... That there was to be a curse upon anyone who rises up to rebuild that city of Jericho. It said, at the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son, shall he set up its gates. So there was a curse upon anyone who would build Jericho. But I hope you can understand whatever curse there is uh, in life, whatever uh, power there that be, the gospel of Jesus Christ any curse of man can be lifted, and that God is one who lifts that curse. So that blessing comes to this land of Jericho because we have, we're told here, Zacchaeus, and even in Jesus' own words, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Salvation came to Jericho. A curse was lifted. Jericho was famous for this balm of the balsam tree. 
this balm had healing properties, and it was very expensive. So you could imagine that there would have been much revenue that would come from it. Jericho was also on this major trade route, which meant more revenue. And you have this man Zacchaeus. Uh, you have that children's uh, Sunday school song, this wee little man, right? Wee little man Zacchaeus, a wee little man was he. So he was a short man, and he was a tax collector, and he was more than a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. What we're told about uh, is that there were, that when Rome, the Romans took over a nation, that uh, they were, they were concerned that they would get their tribute, that they would get their, their money, their, their revenue. That was, that was the key thing for them. And apparently Israel was divided into three districts. And the, the district with the most revenue apparently was Zacchaeus' district. And you can imagine that uh, for, for the Romans, they had the native people collect the taxes. So they, they hired people from among the natives to say, okay, your job is to collect taxes from your own people. And the Romans would come in and set some kind of number, like a quota. Okay, this is how much we expect to get from this city or this area or, or this district. And whatever you collect on top of it, it seemed like they, they didn't really care. Hey, you need to make a living? Well, collect extra. Go ahead. And apparently that's what these tax collectors did. And for the Jews, they, they absolutely hated they absolutely hated. Uh, their own tax collectors because it was a reminder that they were a conquered people, right? Contrary to what, what the, the Pharisees said to Jesus, we've never been enslaved by anyone, right? I, I, that was just a bold-faced lie, right? They were enslaved by many people, and at the time they were enslaved by the, Rome, uh, the Romans. So these tax collectors would skim off the top, take from their own people, and then pay the Romans. And they were known to be people who were unethical, uh, greedy, and not to be trusted. That you certainly would not want uh, to invite uh, tax collectors to your children's wedding, right? This is, this is not something that you would do. You wouldn't want them in your house. You wouldn't want them seen coming or going from your house. This is something that was very bad. They were avoided. And Jesus already had his run-in earlier in Luke that they started saying, hey, this man is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What is he doing? Why should we follow him? He's, he's, a, he's an evil man. Uh, and this is bad. And so here you have Zacchaeus. You can imagine a small man. You think about the Napoleonic complex. That he probably was a very capable, intelligent man. He was a greedy man. And he was exceedingly wealthy because of it. So this is the scene that we have. And this little man, Zacchaeus, the sycamore fig tree. Children, you can imagine, this would be a very good tree to climb. Oftentimes, our trees in our area, they have these sheer trunks, these bare trunks uh, for, for you know, a long distance. So there's no low branches to get on. But apparently, these sycamore trees... <clears throat> They had branches that started coming out very low to the ground. So it'd be very easy to climb. You can get your foot onto that lower branch and start climbing your way up. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus did. He was curious. He heard about this Jesus. Probably didn't know much about him. But he wanted to see him. And since he was a short man, he said, Hey, I can't see above people. He had, he had no height advantage. So he says, I'll use what advantage I can get. I'll climb this tree. So that's the first point, the account of Zacchaeus. And the second point, the embrace of Christ by faith in verses 5 through 7. 
And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Here, we have an account of what Jesus said to Zacchaeus when he passed him. Very simple. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. It's as if this is the call of the gospel. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Hurry, meaning do not delay. Do not delay in your gospel response. It's very easy for people to say, you know what, hey, I... I've got a lot of work. I'm really busy. You know, I, you're right. The gospel is important. And uh, I, when I have more time in my life, I'm going to dedicate my time to serving God. I've heard that many times before. And I'm going to tell you that time will never come. It will never come. It has to be a priority for your life. If God is worth serving, he's worth serving today. If the gospel is worth believing, it's worth believing right now. If you're going to say, hey, I'm going to wait for another time, a different time. What you're saying is, God, you're not a priority to me. And, and what, God, what God does is he, he lights the fire at times. He sends difficult things so that you'll see it is a priority. So do not delay in your gospel response. Also, Jesus says, come down. Speaking to Zacchaeus, Jesus' words were, come down from that sycamore tree. But figuratively speaking, it's as if the gospel call from Jesus Christ is to each one of us saying, come down from your high place of pride and self-reliance and self-righteousness. However high we think we are, we are lowly. After pride comes a fall. Many people think, you know what? I just don't see my need for Jesus Christ. Is that really the issue? It usually is. I just don't see that I have such need as other people like these tax collectors and sinners. It is a blessing when God opens our eyes for us to be able to see the depth and the gravity of our own sin. And here Jesus says, For I must stay at your house today. I don't know what things were like back then. Uh, you could understand that in our culture, right? Uh, for example, we're planning a trip to see one of my old pastors there in Milwaukee. And he moved from California where I knew him. And it's very clear. We can't say, hey, can, can you host us for dinner? You can't say that. That's, that's, that's rude. You have to say, I would like to treat you to dinner. And you hope that he might say, because his wife is such a fantastic cook, that, she might, that he might say, oh, no, we will host you instead. And you say, oh, thank you very much. Right? But the offer stands. I, I'm offering to pay for your dinner. And so also here, but perhaps if there's a similar understanding, you can't just invite yourself to someone's house. But Jesus does that. I must stay at your house today. But you can imagine what that would mean. 
How many people would this Zacchaeus have in his home? I would think nobody. He would have great wealth. And perhaps some people would say, hey, it's, it's nice to be friends with a rich man. But then not this rich man. Because he's going to take from you everything you've got. Was it, was it the Beatles sang the song about tax man? Right? You'll tax your sleep. Tax everything about you. This is the guy. right? He's the guy. But here Jesus saying, I'm going to come into your house. And so also, the Lord Jesus commands us that we might receive him into our house. If your guest comes, obviously the guest kind of knows, hey, there's certain places they can't just walk into, right? They probably can't walk into your, your, uh, your, your bedroom or, or your, your master uh, bathroom uh, or, or, or whatnot. So, you know, that, that may not be, unless, unless you welcome there and say, hey, I'll, I'll give you a tour of my house. But you understand that when Jesus asked to come into our home, into our lives. Access to every part of our lives must be given to him. That in embracing Jesus Christ, in believing upon him, there must be this, Jesus, you are welcome into every aspect of my life. You're, you're welcome into all of my relationships because you govern them. You're welcome into my free time. You're welcome into my work life. You're welcome to my recreation time. You're welcome into my bedroom. You're welcome into how I educate my children. You're, the, how I spend my money. That there's no place that we can say, you know what, God, this area is off limits for you. We welcome into, you, into our lives. And you are Lord of everything. About our lives. This is the understanding of the Ten Commandments, right? They're a summary in just as different areas of our lives. And then Zacchaeus' response. Zacchaeus' response in verse 6 is just the mirror image of verse 5. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. In verse 6, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. You see how there's. A, a mirror image that he didn't delay. He came down from the tree right away and that he received Jesus joyfully into his home and into his heart. Here, you think about faith and its effect. Faith brings joy. Faith brings joy. Even little children can understand you think about this story of the pilgrim's progress. That Christian is trying to get rid of this burden. How joyful is it to have a burden removed from your life? I would think it would be great joy. The burden of sin and the guilt of sin being removed. This is great. That God gives us an exceedingly good offer. Believe upon Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and embrace eternal life. You will be forgiven. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That God is the one who fills us with all peace and joy in believing. Because faith in Jesus Christ brings joy. It also brings hope. And faith purifies your life. Acts 15.9, and he made no distinction between us and them, 
cleansing their hearts by faith. That this is, this is Jews and Gentiles alike. That God uses faith to purify our hearts. He refines us. Now perhaps we should cover that there are some pitfalls regarding this matter of faith. How, how often it comes up. We read earlier in our catechism. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. So, commonly, people who claim faith, that faith is disconnected at times from Jesus. So they, they, they think that faith has some power outside of being united to Christ. So people can claim faith in faith. Uh, try to understand what I'm saying here. Faith must have the right object. And it must be the Jesus Christ who is presented to us in the Bible. It can't be a Jesus of our own making. Well, uh, there's, there's parts of the Bible that I don't like. So my Jesus is different. Well, that's not Jesus then. That's no longer Jesus. It's a Jesus of your own making. That's called an, that's called an idol at that point. And he has a different name. Faith is always coupled with repentance. They always go together. They're like two twins that stick together. They're never separated. And we look also at the crowds there in verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Perhaps some of you might think I'm making too much of this, but I, I think it's important because anytime there is true faith and true conversion, there will be opposition. The scriptures speak about what happens in heaven when a sinner repents and believes. Luke 15:10, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is rejoicing in heaven when a man is converted, believes upon Jesus Christ, repents of his sin. There is good news. There is rejoicing in heaven. There should be rejoicing in Christ's church when people come to saving faith and repentance. But look what happens with these Jewish leaders. They all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now obviously, the term sinner, they're, they're talking about a scandalous Right? A wicked sinner. But we ask ourselves, what did Jesus come to do? He tells us at the very end there, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So if there's any sinner that ought to be saved, isn't it the really bad ones? Because our God is mighty and powerful. He saves not just the best ones. He's, he saves the very worst ones. And you have men like the Apostle Paul who are saying, among whom I am the worst, among whom I am chief. So, so what problem do these religious leaders have with Jesus? Other than he comes and does what he says he's going to do. He comes and saves sinners. And you think about all the things that can go wrong here. I'm going to give you an illustration. This is the ultimate party pooper. Okay, It's the ultimate party pooper. Think about someone that you know, whether in your neighborhood or in your workplace. And for whatever reason, your thought is, if that person ever invited me to their home or out to eat, I would never go. I would never go with that person for whatever reason. 
It could be improper reason or proper reason. You would just never accept an invitation for that person. But then you see in conversation in your neighborhood, at the workplace, that this person asks some, one of your coworkers or one of your neighbors out, and the person gladly receives it. And says, oh, yeah, thank you. I, I'll be there tomorrow. I'm glad. And then you hear that, and then you're upset. You're upset because that person never actually asked you. But they ask someone else instead, and the other person goes. But you weren't going to go anyway. You, never, you said yourself you never would have gone. And, and this is the very problem, ultimate party pooper, with these Jews. They don't believe Jesus Christ, that he is a savior who saves. That he is a Lord who reigns. But when other people hear this good news and are saved, they, they're upset about it. See, this is the very words of Jesus. Luke eleven fifty two. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hinder those who are entering. So you have to ask yourself, whose side are you on? Are you you on the side of the angels, or are you on the side of these Jewish religious leaders? It seems like they're lining up with the demons. If the angels are on one side, the angels in heaven, right? And then here you have the religious leaders. They're they're on the other side. They're they're with the demons. We're on the wrong side. We should be rejoicing when sinners repent and embrace the good news of the gospel. And that each time we hear that, we should say, God indeed is powerful. He proves that. He proves that all the time. He saves the worst. So that we might know. The apostle Paul said himself that he was there as an example, as, as evidence. Hey, This is God saving even the very worst. I was a persecutor of the church, and now, by His grace, He appointed me as an apostle. Interesting, huh? Sometimes we forget of God's saving power. What, you mean He can even save that person? You better believe it. He does. He saves Zacchaeus. Here, we think about some of these wrong decisions that these people made, which caused them to grumble. The self-righteous doubt the gravity of their own sinful condition. Here, these people, these religious leaders, they couldn't see uh, the worst part of their, of their lives. That, uh, that they were those who didn't believe that they needed Jesus as much as Zacchaeus did. These self-righteous religious leaders also doubted the truthfulness, the generosity... The kindness and the power of God. Wait a minute. You mean to say you could save even the worst of sinners? They didn't believe that. They didn't believe that about our God. The self-righteous doubt the true conversion of those who come to Christ. Because they themselves have no power in their lives. Think about that verse from 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Or holding to a form of religion, that in the end, you'll have these people who look to be outwardly religious, but they've denied its power. Because they themselves fall victim to their own lust, to their own greed, to their own ungodliness. Because there's no spirit at work in their lives. And then when they hear about other people being changed... They're suspect because they don't realize that our Holy Spirit indeed is powerful to heal and to save. So this is the embrace of Christ by faith. 
We have also the fruits of repentance in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Here's the scene. It's uh, Zacchaeus standing. I don't know if you've noticed this, but standing is significant. Notice in a wedding, who's seated and who's standing? How long does that bride have to stand in her high heels that no one can see, right? You see, that's, that's a double whammy, right? She, no one can see the high heels, but she has to stand in them. And it's because the vows the person takes are standing out of, out of uh, there's a solemnness. Hey, you're not just seated, you're standing. So also in the court case, right? You're about to take, you're about to be a witness or you're about to be uh, cross-examined. Your hand is on the Bible. Maybe you don't do that anymore, but you're standing when you take that oath. So the standing is a position of taking some kind of vow or oath. This is exactly what Zacchaeus was doing. He's standing in the presence of Jesus. So here we have the fruits of repentance being manifested. Think for a moment, a tax collector. If he became a chief tax collector, he probably was successful at what he did. Right? He was ambitious. Perhaps there was even a greedy or a covetous streak in this man, which made him very good at what he did. He was probably a very capable administrator, a very good bookkeeper. Yet with his conversion, that Zacchaeus attempts to break from his covetous past by parting with half his wealth. You notice he doesn't say... I'm going to give away half my wealth, and then, Lord Jesus, will you then forgive me? <laughs> no, no, no. He doesn't say that at all. He says, I've been forgiven. I trust that. But part of, part of his difficulty was, hey, this, this was a sin that has gripped me. It has gripped me and held me down. It's covetousness. And he's saying, hey, I'm going to try to deal with that. I'm going to deal with that by giving half my wealth away. Because, you know, you think about... Both legs, both arms, and his teeth. He's grabbing on to this wealth. He's not going to let it go. He's going to fight tooth and nail. And he's saying, hey, half of it, I'm just going to give it away. This is evidence of a changed man. You can imagine, people might say, hey, this man is no longer the same. Though he was so wealthy, right, maybe the beggar that lived around the corner from him on the street corner would say, hey, he wouldn't even give me a piece of bread. And now he's saying he's going to give half his wealth away which we believe he does. There's a willingness to forsake past sins. Ephesians 4.28 Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See that pattern? The pattern. You think about how, how difficult it is to have thieves in our society. You get up in the morning, you go out of your car, and you find this great big rock sitting in your driver's seat with all this glass there, and, oh, no, hey, now, now I'm going to be late for work, right? And, and then you're late for work, and you're busted. What, what do you do? I mean, is, is this just an inconvenience, right? Hey, they, they stole a, a total of about, uh, you know, a few CDs and, uh, you know, a few bucks from, from my glove box, and what, what? I mean, if he wanted to take that, he could have taken that, right? But here... You think of how difficult dealing with thieves are. And we're told, hey, stop doing that. You're obstructing someone else's work, making someone else's life difficult. Rather, 
Let him labor. So instead of being diligently to steal, that a changed man, new life in Christ means they're going to do honest work. Hey, I'm going to stop stealing. I'm going to start being productive. And I'm going to start sharing with those who have genuine need. Look at the, the work and, and what happens in repentance in a man's life. Here, what Zacchaeus does squashes any of these thoughts about a false repentance. In repentance, there must be an acknowledgement of sin. <clears throat> there must be an acknowledgement that what we've done is sin and it is grievous to God. 1 Kings <clears throat> chapter 8, verse 47. There is acknowledgement in God's people when they're taken captive and we're told they repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, we have sinned and have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. So the first basic thing in repentance is acknowledging we have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. What we've done was wrong. And for many people, repentance stops right there. Yeah, what I did was wrong, but they continue in it. They continue doing it. That's not repentance. If you can't even admit it was wrong, big trouble. You have to admit it's wrong, but there must come something after that. See, acknowledging that it's sin is not repentance. Just confessing it is not enough. Many stop there. They confess, they acknowledge, but they love sin and they continue in it. It's not repentance. Have you ever met some of these drug addicts? In some countries, I think in Europe, they have a way of dealing with these drug addicts where, where they say, okay, do you want to continue in this? Meaning that, hey, it's taken up so much resources of the state that we're just going to let you, okay, whatever your drug is, heroin, okay, so we're going to give you a, a place to stay, uh, and we'll provide you the drugs and the clean needles, and we're going to tell you, hey, you're only going to live about three or four years in, in this lifestyle. We know, but okay, this is the way you want to do this? Yes, okay. So this will eventually kill you, you realize, very fast. Yes, okay, we'll continue it. Well, in many ways, for sinners, they have the same conclusion as this drug addict. I know that this sin or this drug will take my life, but you know what? I'm going to continue in it. Why would someone choose that? Well, for the drug addict, it's addiction. For the sin, for the sinner, it's the same thing. They love their sin. There must be a sorrowing for sin. So in short, a catechism speaks about with grief and hatred of his sin. Now, I need to clarify here, it's not with grief and hatred of the consequences of your sin. You see the difference? People, people often say, oh, I hate these consequences, right? So trust is broken, right? With lying, with deception, trust is broken. And I want you to trust me, but I want to keep lying. Well, that's consequences. Well, God, all of these grievous things have happened to me. Just remove all the consequences from me. It's not repentance either. Think about Cain. God put a certain punishment, a mark on his head. Cain's response to God was, my consequence is too great to bear. So he's saying, God, you're too extreme with me. But then when you look at King David, God's consequences, hey, listen, <clears throat> look what you've done. He says that 
uh, what's it? The sword will never leave your house. And you think about the turmoil in his, in his family. Do you think David said anything in response of God? He didn't say anything like my consequence. He, he accepted it because here, in his repentance, he was trusting God. Hey, God, you are, in, you are in the retribution business and you are in the discipline business. And I trust you with both of those. This is repentance. Hey, I will accept the consequences. This is where many of us seem to fall short. We think that the, we play the game Monopoly, right? Children, you play this game Monopoly, right? You get this card called the get out of jail free card, right? And, and when you're starting out, it's great. So you can keep going around and acquire properties. When, when, uh, when you're at the end with all these massive landmines of properties, it's great to get stuck in jail, right? But, but this get out of jail free card, hey, I want to use it. But repentance is not that card, not at all. It's an acceptance of the consequences. You know, you could go to these condemned criminals, right, on death row who become, who become Christians. And you can ask them and they should be able to say, hey, the consequences of our sin in this life are remain. I, I should be executed. I deserve to die for, for, my, for my crimes. But I believe that I will have eternal life because Jesus is a Savior who saves. Then there's a forsaking of sins. So acknowledgement of sins, a sorrowing for sins. There's a forsaking of sins. Repentance means that we love Jesus Christ more than our sins. You're standing on a dock in a boat. And you're doing the splits, right? So you, you can't continue that way. And in the gospel, as it's presented to us, either you're both feet with Jesus on the dock... Or you're both feet in the boat. You cannot have both. And forsaking our sins means both hands were clinging to Jesus Christ with everything that we have. We cannot hold on to our sins and hold on to Christ. It cannot continue that way. John chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. The reason why sinners hate the light because Jesus is the light. Jesus exposes our sin. And if we love our sins, then we will reject Jesus. John Owen had this great quote about sin. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you're going to cling to Christ, cling to him with all that you've got. But you cannot try to cling to Christ and at the same time cling to your sin. It's not going to work. So forsaking of sins means stop doing it. Endeavoring after new obedience. So you think about the sin of, the sin of commission. So if you look back at the example of theft. He who steals must steal no longer. And then he must do honest work and share with those who are in need. So we apply that to the sin of omission. So start doing the good things that God commands that we've omitted. Then we also think of righting the wrong. Here, Zacchaeus was one who was willing to right the wrong. <clears throat> Not only did he say this sin of covetousness and of greed, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to attempt to deal with it by saying, I'm going to give away half my wealth. Then he also says, I'm going to right the wrong. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. If you look at the Old Testament, 
there's various forms of restitution. There's a 20%, there's a double restitution, and then in some instances there was like a four or five-fold. And, and here, Zacchaeus was saying he's willing to pay that four or five-fold. He's desiring that those whom he has defrauded, he will pay back. For those whose livelihood was taken away or whose property was, uh, was misappropriated, he's saying that he's going to make it right. And so also, when you and I repent, there should be a desire to say, hey, whatever can be restored ought to be restored. There's, there's not this, hey, let's just call all debts off. There's a willingness to pay back. If it's money, then it's paid back. And so here, with this matter of repentance, it's very easy for us to say, hey, I just want the get-out-of-jail-free card. God, just make the consequences come to an end. But God has higher standards for us, and that by faith we ought to understand that He is one who is at work in us. However inundated we feel in dealing with the consequences, He's walking there with us, helping us through. That however far we veered off the path of righteousness, we're trusting Jesus is the one who will bring us back once again. And we have the fruits of the, the saving work of Christ. The last point, verses 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Here. It's not that Zacchaeus had the blood of Abraham. Rather, the understanding is that by faith, we are true sons of Abraham. So Jesus is stating publicly for all those there and for all of us here in posterity that we might know that Zacchaeus is indeed saved. He's passed from death to life. Salvation is his. What a statement that our Lord Jesus makes. Sometimes we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to identify with the shame of Jesus Christ? The man who died on a cross, who was rejected by the world. And I hope you come to the conclusion, whatever shame that might bring, we must be willing to live with those consequences. Because he has the very words of eternal life. He and no other. And then we flip this around for a moment. We flip this around. And we ask, was Jesus ever ashamed to identify with us as sinners? And the answer is, no, not ever. And you see here, you have Zacchaeus. Nobody liked him. Everyone hated him. And Jesus says, hey, this man is saved. He is a son of Abraham. Salvation has come to his house. Is that, is that Jesus is saying, hey, do any of you have any accusation against this man because that accusation is going to have to get past me that Jesus is saying my blood has covered his sin do you doubt my ability to do that here we have Jesus saying this man is forgiven he has no shame to be united to this sinner and you realize the good news of the gospel is Jesus is one who is with us 
Any accusation, Satan should come, all the demons come, hey, this person did this, this, and this. Jesus says, well, did you think I didn't know that? I already paid for those sins, already covered. Any accusation of anyone who might come is immaterial because our Jesus identifies with sinners. His blood washes away our sin. Are you one who is trusting in Jesus Christ? You realize that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus willingly identifies with sinners. His blood has paid the price for our sin. His righteousness covers our shame. The very righteousness that you and I lack, he says, receive it by faith. Believe upon my perfect work. That Jesus is one who comes to seek and to save that which was lost. Salvation is never by our own power. Conversion is a duty of man. And yes, we must believe and we must repent. But you realize, outside of the power of God, no man can convert himself. That conversion is always a work of God first and foremost. And it's evidenced by the very decisions that you and I make in our lives. That God shows himself mighty. He shows himself powerful. He shows himself faithful that he says that Jesus is a savior who saves. And he comes and he saves sinners indeed. He frees us from the guilt of sin. He frees us from the eternal punishment of sin. And even in this life, he is freeing us from the power of sin. So that the things we must once loved, we will no longer love. We will love Jesus Christ above all of those things of the past. We have to trust that his way is perfect. His way is right. That we should delight when we see others coming to faith in Jesus Christ. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord.